0: Well, it's wonderful to be back here again. Actually, I never left. So, you're going to see a little bit more of me. And then I'll get on a plane today and you'll all go, boy, he overstayed his welcome. Oh, anyway, I hope that's not the case. But no, my wife and I have been just talking over and over and over about this whole weekend and it just being such an incredible time of encouragement, favor, refreshing blessing. I mean, when I travel around, I, I, heck, I love blessing people, but the more you try to bless people, oftentimes you get blessed even twice as much yourself. So it is an amazing thing being back here on this campus where we were both students, but so thrilling and encouraging to see all of you, to see the faculty that, uh, that taught me, but then also to see some of the new faces. I mean, successionism and new people, the Lord plugging in new men and women into places and advancing and moving people around, like that's, that's amazing. And so I just see, and I really feel, and this isn't cliche, I really feel the hand of the Lord upon this campus, and don't waste it. He's brought you here for this time, for such a time as this. He's brought you here, and He's connected you with each other. He connects you with his heart. He connects you with faculty and staff and people here in the town. And wherever you go, don't waste it. And it is an amazing thing when we're in the the presence of the Lord and in the palm of his hand, in his will. I often feel like the most terrifying place I could ever be in my life would be outside of his will. Can you imagine that? I mean, like, that would be terrifying. I mean, you think of Jonah. He, like throws himself into the sea and gets swallowed by a fish, because he realizes he's outside of the will of God, even though he's still struggling. That is, we want to be in the will of the Lord. And um, as it was said, and you probably know, but just in case you weren't here on Friday, my name's Peter Fast. I'm the National Director of Bridges for Peace. We are an organization um, uh, internationally based in Israel and around the world in nine countries. And we are a reconciliation ministry we're Christians reaching out to the Jewish people. We need to reconcile because there's a massive chasm between the two of us. We really, um, the, the, the word is love. We really haven't been speaking in love and unconditional love to Jewish people, typically, obviously not every Christian, but typically over 17 centuries. There's been a lot of animosity. Unfortunately, many people that would call themselves Christians, it, that animosity rose into uh, anti-Semitism. Acts of violence, extreme persecution throughout history, which has left the Jewish people uh, today very raw. Uh, Their stereotypes, assumptions, or fears, suspicions, of course, not every Jewish person, but many of them, of what a Christian is. Who is this Jesus? Like a distortion, almost like a wounded animal or an abused person. And can I really trust? this person and here's a challenge to you and this challenge goes way beyond just jewish people working with jewish people this this challenge could go into your families it could go into the people you know it could go into the communities what makes you so different than all of those other people right what makes okay so you go to a church okay so you read the bible what makes you so different than those other people Because we know people that have been burned by the church. We know uh, non-believers that have had maybe terrible experiences with Christians, or they write them off as they're all hypocrites, or, or so on and so forth. And then they meet you. Then they meet you. What makes you so different? There's another Jewish quote that says, Don't tell me what you believe. Let me follow you around for two weeks, and then I'll tell you what you believe. So these are like really, really good challenges that I, go, I believe that go beyond. But we're a reconciliation ministry. We're doing incredible things. You can look us up on bridgesforpeace.com. I'm not going to spend too much more time on that. But it really is hard work. When you're reconciling with anybody, whether it's a sibling or a friend or anybody, there's going to be mistakes made. You need a lot of grace you need a lot of patience, and sometimes it can get frustrating. you got to just prove yourself over and over and over and over again. So it's, But we're called to this, salt and light. We're called to make disciples. We're called to show love and not be ashamed of the gospel, but show love and demonstrate that and be different in the world, but not of the world. There's so many of these incredible concepts. Now, before I get way too serious and dive into this incredible passage of I am the bread of life, I'm going to give you a little snapshot, a kind of a funny little snapshot of what it was like, one of the uh, situations of what it was like when I was a student here. And um, it was a week night, probably 2003. A lot of men find themselves in a room at the dorm. Uh, the dean of the men is there. He will remain nameless, although some people will know who he is. And a poor bloke, poor chap comes in that's obviously going to be pranked. All of the guys, we've been talking about it, so we all are in on it. The poor chap who walks in has no idea, but it goes something like this. Okay, so we're going to do a strongman competition here. So we, t- we say to the person, we'll just call him Joe. Okay, so Joe, what we're going to do is, it's really possible. It's very difficult, but if you listen and, and cooperate, this is possible. We're going to get you to lay down on the floor. Okay. We're going to get two people to cross over like kind of one across here, one across your ankles and then two others crossing over and if and it's like a science, we talk it up. So if everybody's like perfectly in line, perfectly balanced, then an individual stands in the middle and grabbing Joe's belt should be able to lift up all five people. <laughs> I tell you we did this twice. It worked. So so they're like, oh, really? Really? And everybody, and I mean, the dean of the men is there. This must be real. This must be true. Like, nobody would do anything like this, right? So we get the Joes on the floor, and the guys lay down there, and and the dean of the men comes in there and grabs the belt. And then the thing is, everybody grunts. You're going to grunt because you want to make a lot of noise. So all the guys surrounding you are cheering, and everybody's going, oh, come on, come on. And you're lifting, and you're pulling, and as you're pulling the belt... Some guy comes in with a bottle of, like, shaving cream or whipped cream and fills their drawers. <laughs> just sprays the entire bottle in there. Now, the poor Joe can't feel what's going on. He's just like, because we tell him, you have to stay, like, totally rigid like a board. And everybody's in on this. And you fill it up, and then you say, "Ah." Oh. Sorry, it didn't work. This is weird. You know, usually it does. Everybody kind of gets up. Good job, Joe. He stands up, looks down, and the look on his face is just priceless as it's just pouring out of his... Yeah. So we did that twice, and we got two guys in right in a row, and actually the first guy that we pranked after he quieted down because he was a little annoyed, he thought it was so hilarious, so he cleaned up, and we got the other guy. He was involved in the other one. So... <laughs> That's just a snapshot of the very serious contemplative life of a student, um, always engaged in the things of God and prayer. Um, So, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. There we go. Are we up? Did I turn it on? Oh, it's not responding, Andrew. Anyway, so, I'm the bread of life. These were words Jesus declares... In the synagogue in Capernaum, along the Sea of Galilee, following the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, with only five loaves of bread and two fish. There we go. Perfect. Okay. So, oh, are we going to sing again? <laughs> I need the worship team up here. Okay, there we go. Perfect. So, we're going to pause right there. Where is this land? Israel. This is what we're talking about right here. We're going to go in a little bit closer, Israel during the time of Jesus, the Romans were here, it was uh, divided up into provinces, we're going to zoom in right here on the Galilee, which is on the edge of the Decapolis, these 10 mainly Greek cities, and there's Capernaum, we're going to kind of zoom in a little bit more, Capernaum, this incredible little village and you can go there today, actually you can go there probably next May, there's a little bit of, oh and go Pilots. I was at the game Saturday night. That was actually... I didn't make a note, but that was supposed to be right at the beginning. Go, Pilots. It was a phenomenal game. Okay, so here's Capernaum. Now, a little bit about Capernaum. These are some pictures. Now, of course they're pictures, duh. Um, But the one on the right here on my left is the synagogue. Now, it's a white stone synagogue. This is not the synagogue Jesus spoke in. This is a recreated synagogue that the Byzantines built about the 4th century, The Byzantines were Romans who then, when they became Christians, started referring to themselves as Byzantines. And they built this synagogue to commemorate and remember that Jesus had preached in this synagogue. Now, the cool thing is, the white synagogue, as you see, rests on a foundation of black basalt, which actually is the foundation of the first century synagogue, okay, that Jesus did preach in. Now the interesting side note that has nothing to do with I am the bread of life, but it's just an interesting side note, is that the white synagogue, if you were to stand right in the front of it and look right down the, the side of the wall between the white rock and the basalt, you can see it, it, the white is set on the black basalt, but it's moved over a little bit. It's corrected. So when the, the Byzantines built this synagogue, they corrected the foundation. Why? Because all synagogues are supposed to face Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And in the first century, the synagogue that Jesus preached in pretty much faced Jerusalem. The Byzantines came along. I have no idea what sciences they used. But they realized it wasn't 100% facing uh, Jerusalem. So they kind of moved it a little bit. Quite interesting. But this is the location. This is the village. You can see the archaeological remains of the excavations that that have gone, where Jesus taught, where Peter lived. It literally is the town of Jesus, Kephar Nahum, the village of Nahum. So it is a really amazing place when you can see these things for themselves. So, the people have witnessed a miracle. Their stomachs testify to it, and they demand another sign. This is in John 6. When Jesus boldly references to himself being the bread of heaven sent from the Father to give life to the world as opposed to the bread which Moses gave the people. And in their obtuse manner, these people simply request this bread. Totally missing the point. It is here Jesus promptly answers that he is speaking of himself, I am, the bread of life. Here Jesus makes the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John which echo Exodus 3.14, where the presence of God, illuminated by the burning bush, answers Moses. The voice of God answers Moses' question as to who or by what name is sending him to Egypt, back to Egypt. I am who I am, or I shall be as I shall be, the infallible name of God. And this attests to God being unchanging and the same throughout all time this name for God points to his self-existence and eternality. It, deno- it denotes, I am the one who is and will be. He is the same God throughout the ages. Praise the Lord. Like that's that's an incredible thing. He doesn't change like shifting shadows like James talks about. He is the same. Now the context, that's kind of what I want to bring us into a little bit of the, kind of the Hebraic context of what's Behind this, what were the Jewish people thinking when they heard Jesus state, I am the bread of life. And he he also referenced and spoke about himself being sent by the Father as heavenly bread. He said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for uh, for the life of the world. Now, this is beautifully related. When I, when I read this, oftentimes I bounce right back to this, the verse we all know, the passage we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved, well, through him would be saved. And oftentimes, this is one of the first passages we learn, and it's easy to ramble through it. But slow down. John 3, 16, 17, and on is incredibly loaded. So the, and that's one of the amazing things with John, the gospel of John. There's some very powerful, very powerful theological truths here. So their reactions, the Jewish people hearing this, their reactions were confusion, disappointment, misunderstanding, interest. I mean, we don't know what every single one was thinking But we do get some broad ideas. Yet for many who were called disciples, it says, they abandoned Jesus after hearing these words, believing that what he taught was a hard saying. Who can understand it? Yet despite this hard saying, all the Jews present hearing Jesus would have had beliefs about what this meant, both rooted in Scripture, tradition, teachings, and other writings, as well as they had a common culture they shared with Jesus as they were all Jews in the land of Israel. They shared common scripture and basic fundamental precepts and truths that united them as all Jews. So things such as the importance of prayer, fasting, repentance, God as creator, holy, the oneness of God, even Messiah, A lot of these things were very, very shared, especially against a pagan world of false gods, and including the need for blood atonement, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, you think about it. You're following the one true God, and basically everybody beyond you, in your mind and in reality, practically all of them are worshiping false gods, and you know this. You've seen it through your history. In fact, whenever Israel entertains those nations taking foreign wives, uh, doing things with them, the paganism often spills into their own ranks, and the hand of God has to come against them. They know this. Yet, despite the snobbery of some of the Judean elite who commented later, can anything good come from Galilee? What archaeology has illuminated is the incredible amount of synagogues among the Jewish population in the Galilee, which means they were quite devout. They studied the Scripture and would have had tried to live their lives as faithful Jews, a part of the nation and covenant of Israel, worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were not illiterate, stupid people. For any first century, serious first century Jew, faithfulness unto God was their life. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad. Hear, o Israel, the Lord is, our, is one, the Lord our God, the Lord our God. Yet now that Messiah walked among them, yet now that he's among them, he was going to not only divide and challenge the nation, the house of Israel, his own, but he would also divide the world and everyone in it. Till this very day, the truth of the Lord, Jesus, is still dividing houses and nations, communities. He came for a very specific mission, okay? Surely he borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes... We are healed, Isaiah 53, 4 to 5. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans six twenty three. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul, Leviticus 17, verse 11. Is this going to work? There we go. Blood was needed for atonement. As long as the hearts of the Israelites were surrendered to God in faith and obedience, and they abided by the sacrifices to God, he would forgive. He says he will forgive them. But this forgiveness was temporary. For the next day, a sacrifice would be needed, and blood to be spilled again, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. The sacrifices could only temporarily remove sin. But God would send His Son, the spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice to take it away. Not just to uh, temporarily remove it, but to take it away. To be that spotless lamb. That final sacrifice. He who was sinless was made to look like sin. This perfect lamb whose blood would be shed so those who place their trust in Him, trust in the Lamb, the Messiah, sin and death were nailed to the cross and defeated through the Messiah's triumph over them. His sinless life, His crucifixion, burial, and resurrection all testify that He is the bread of life. Now in Exodus 16, we see God providing for the Israelites by miraculous provisions. In fact, all throughout Exodus right, from the plagues, their deliverance, like provision. He brought them out with a strong and outstretched arm. But he provides for them, even in their rebellion, he provides for them bread and and quail from heaven. And chapter 17, water coming from rock. It's just absolutely incredible. It says their sandals, their clothes didn't even wear out. Like, this is amazing. The provision, the nourishment that they received, literally, and physically in the desert. Manna was a part of the physical salvation of Israel. Once they had been liberated and led out of Egypt by the presence of God and under the leadership of Moses, the people needed food, as people often do. I mean, like, I like food, right? I used to be called a food dog by a friend of mine. I like food. I'm hypoglycemic, so I like it even more. I have to graze all the time like a cow. I kind of eat throughout the whole day. So, they were no doubt desperate. Can you imagine... Slaves have no rights. These people, that's all they had known. Like, sometimes we, I mean, we, yeah, they were in rebellion. There were serious issues, but sometimes we give them a little bit of a hard time. Can you imagine coming out of slavery when that's all you've ever known, and then suddenly this freedom, and you see God working through you, and He doesn't just lead you into this beautiful paradise with food everywhere? You're in the desert. It's hard. The desert is hot and it is uncomfortable. Yet despite their fears, their grumbling, their complaining, and their struggle to trust in God, and sometimes outright rebellion, wanting to kill Moses, seriously, despite all of this, he provided food and nourishment. The bread of heaven in Exodus literally saved the physical nation. However, everyone who was a part of that nation eventually died, as the natural course of life has been since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Even the manna couldn't stop death or save anyone's soul. Now Jesus was declaring that he was salvation in the true sense. There's a spiritual component of that, promising full and complete atonement and everlasting salvation, and then also literal, physical resurrection. It's not just like this pie-in-the-sky thing. Salvation includes a literal, physical resurrection of the dead demonstrated by his literal resurrection from the dead and the conquering of death itself. Jesus declares himself sent by God as the bread of heaven, the bread of life. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. That's verses 37 to 40 of John 6. If you confess with your mouth The Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 9-10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Peter 1-3. Now two centuries prior to Jesus' earthly ministry, the belief in the resurrection from the dead had been restored and swelled Jewish belief. It had become an important focal point of the day of the Lord and the coming of the Messiah. This belief, largely ignored for centuries, had resurfaced in an intense expression during the persecutions under the Greek Seleucids. So this is after Alexander the Great So the Greek Seleucids, nearly two centuries earlier, where Jewish men, women, and children were horrifically murdered for their faith in the one true God. This is the story of Hanukkah. So this comes out of that. This naturally stirred up concern about what would happen to these martyrs afterwards who so faithfully laid down their lives. Early sages searched the Scriptures and brought back The teaching of the resurrection which widely influenced the generations to follow. Brought back. And it still is an amazing instrumental piece and part of not just our faith, but even rabbinic Judaism. Resurrection is very important. The resurrection. So in the manner that the bread of heaven kept the Israelites alive in the wilderness from physically starving to death, Jesus uses a messianic metaphor, aligning himself with being living bread that can save someone from death spiritually. Jesus urges those who want this bread to come to him, and they will never again be hungry or thirsty. John 6, 27. Now, what is interesting is that both hunger and thirst were central issues when the Israelites were in the desert that the Lord provided for them despite rebellion in their ranks. There we go. In Jewish culture, bread is very important. Now, not just a staple part of their diet, as bread is found in practically every culture in the world, a form of bread. But bread is very important to all major feasts of the Lord and the Sabbath. Now, except for Passover, which the bread is very different. The bread is like matzah, it's unleavened. So it's a very different type of bread. You can see it in the top corner, a modern version of what it would look like. And the bread and matzah is often broke, broken or ripped and communally shared. Jews break the matzah, the bread of affliction at Passover, and they tear the challah, the bread at Shabbat, and they say, Baruch atah melech chamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who brings us forth bread of the earth. And the root of challah comes from the bread eaten by the priests in the temple. So in the temple, there was 12 loaves of bread that were kept on the table of showbread in the tabernacle and temple throughout the week and were replaced with fresh ones just before the Sabbath. And the old loaves could be eaten by the priests in the holy place. These loaves or cakes stood as an offering to God in His presence. So a statement such as, I am the bread of life, would have a huge impact upon the hearers. Now, John 6 is loaded with very complex messianic declarations. For many of the Jewish listeners present, many of Jesus' statements were difficult to hear and understand due to some of the messianic norms that were believed or hotly debated at the time. After Jesus performs the feeding of the 5,000, many of the people wish to declare him king. That's in 6.14. This is, now, king is a major messianic title. The Messiah would be descended from King David and rule forever. However, the messianic debate involved, well, what kind of king will Messiah be? A human agent? Divine? Is he a liberator and a conqueror to crush evil and restore righteousness? Is he a world king or just the king of Israel or both? John tells us in chapter 6 that many of the men present called him the prophet. This is also is tied to the character of Messiah. He is not just a king, but the ultimate prophet, as well as the ultimate priest. The Jews believed Messiah would teach Torah, the scriptures, perfectly, and correct all confusion and misinterpretation. They believed that's one of the reasons Messiah will come, is he will teach the whole world The scriptures perfectly and settle all the debates. All the debates. Although the vast majority of Jews agreed upon the coming of Messiah as a person, as opposed to some forms of rabbinic Judaism that says it's not a person, it's a time, there were deep eschatological discussions, end time discussions. Would he come once or twice? Would he suffer and then reign or just reign? Would he suffer and die but then immediately come back? Or would he just be made to look like he had died? Would he come low and humbly upon a donkey if Israel lacked merit? Or would he come on the clouds as the Son of Man if Israel was righteous? Putting things into perspective for faithful Torah-observant Jews living under the Roman occupation of Edomia, Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee was anything but easy. The Romans could be very cruel and harsh, but the major issue was they were pagan and had brought their gods into their land. And it was an affront to all religious Jews and to God himself. And to be frank, in the opinions of God-fearing Jews, the Romans were literally polluting the land just as the Canaanites had been doing when Joshua entered the land with the 12 tribes. And when we look at these, these, these words, these names, Messiah, Mashiach, Christos Christ anointed one the kings of judea were anointed with oil and yet the messiah would be the ultimate anointed one nobody else would need to reign under the uh, nobody else would need to reign after the ultimate anointed one his reign would last forever john tells that a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased Signs to affirm the identity of the Messiah were very important. The scriptures, the prophets show us over and over. Signs were important. but many of these people followed Jesus simply because of the signs, not because they understood who He truly was. Even Peter, who was atop of Mount Tabor with Jesus when he was transfigured and heard the voice of God didn't chase after only just the sign or the wonder that he beheld, but he saw that event confirmed in the prophetic word, which was his foundation and base of everything. Listen to this as he boldly states in 2 Peter 1, 17-21. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Yet sadly, for many of the people who witnessed the signs and wonders and healings of Jesus, that was where their motivation started and ended. There was no further substance than that. They were dazzled and left awestruck, but they never understood the enormity of what stood before them, who stood before them, and what it testified to. Messiah, the Son of Man, Son of God in the flesh. Sadly, this is also the the very state of many Christians today who chase after signs and wonders, yet have no foundation or rock to stand on. Biblical literacy is rampant in the Western church. And for many professing believers in Christ, they can't see the truth beyond the event or the experience. And when there is no real substance, they often walk away from their faith. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. After seeing many of his disciples abandon him, Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Mashiach, the Christ, the Son of Of the living God. Let's pray. Father God, we just, we are humble before you. Lord God, we thank you that you are the bread of life, that you sent your Son who is faithful right to the end, who did not stay in a tomb but rose, ascended, and sits at your right hand. That spotless lamb whose blood was shed for the entire world. You are the God of history. You invaded history. You want relationship with real people. But you are not just a God of history. You are a God of today and the future and eternal life. You are holy, spotless, righteous, filled with great chesed, steadfast love, abounding in mercy, a perfect judge, the most high God. Oh Lord, I thank you that even though we do not deserve you, that our flesh was in open rebellion against you, that we wanted darkness rather than light, that you reached us out to us. And we only love you because you loved us first. And you rescued us. And your word is hope. I thank you that you are the bread of life. I thank you that I do not have to hunger and thirst for anything else once you satisfy me with your incredible gift of salvation. And you will not abandon me. You don't just save me. You rescue us. You are Lord of our life. You guide us. You counsel us. You sanctify us. And one day we will see you face to face. Praise your name. Bless all the students here. May your shalom pour out upon them all and the faculty. Keep them in good health. Be with their families. Bless them mightily. Be with Mark. Bless them, Lord. In your name, amen. Thank you.